This is episode 84 of Alohomora for May 17th, 2014. Welcome, listeners, to MuggleNet.com's Alohomora podcast, where we are conducting a global reread of Harry Potter. I'm Michael Harley. I am Eric Skull. I'm Laura Riley, and here today we have two very special guests. I'd like to welcome Lynn M. Bowie and Peter Ernest, which are the authors of Harry Potter and the Art of Spying, which is a new, really awesome book. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. All right. So would you guys each like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? You both have very amazing backgrounds. So, uh, Lynn, if you'd like to start. Well, my background isn't near as interesting as Peter, but uh, uh, I'm a Potter fan and uh, uh, decided that reviewing this series and rereading it, that there was a lot of spy craft in it. Uh, so I uh, sat down, did an outline on the book, and reviewed uh, the book we're working on now, Order of Phoenix. And then I, uh, once I had a kind of a rough draft, I brought in uh, my good friend Peter Ernest, uh, uh, who will tell you about his background. And he's the real spy, so we could get all the spy craft accurate. And uh, uh, so that's my marginal background. Uh, and I'm a lawyer, as uh, well as a former college professor. Great. All right. I began life in Edinburgh, Scotland. Grew up not far from where Sean Connery did. We went in different directions. <laughs> uh, came to this country. Um, have grown up largely around the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, served a stint in the Marine Corps as a Marine officer in Japan. Uh, then uh, was recruited by CIA and served some 35 years in CIA. Uh, about 25 years of that in what are called clandestine or covert operations. Uh, then I served other uh, functions in CIA. I was an investigator, uh, inspector with the IG. I covered Capitol Hill, the oversight committees, and uh, I was also the uh, uh, director of media relations and spokesman for directors uh, Judge Webster, Bob Gates, and uh, Jim Woolsey. Uh, then I left there, went into the private sector, and then I accepted a position as the executive director of the International Spy Museum here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was the, I'm the founding director, so I was here when we opened in 2002, and I am still here presiding over a museum which is uh, going down the path now of becoming a nonprofit and also within the next two to three years relocating. That's amazing. <laughs> we are so, so glad to have both of you. And I'm a huge fan. I've been to the Spy Museum, and it's truly an amazing experience. Oh, great. So I couldn't be more excited. I believe I speak for all of us in saying that um, to have both of you on this. Uh, your book is fascinating. And we're definitely we're so glad that you're here for this chapter because that's particularly relevant. We do want to ask the gentlemen uh, what their Hogwarts house would be had they been sorted into Hogwarts houses. Uh <laughs> I, I did do the uh, the little questionnaire at the beginning, and I am in Hufflepuff. Oh, yes. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Lynn, how about yourself? Well, I've decided to be Ravenclaw because I assumed that Peter was going to be Gryffindor as a former spy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's good. We have a nice uh, – Michael and I are both Hufflepuffs. Yes. Uh, Laura? I'm a Gryffindor. 
Gryffindor. There we are. So all of the uh, nice houses are represented. Oh, no. Good, today. good. <laughs> and is particularly perfect having both Lynn and Peter on today because we are venturing into Chapter 7, The Ministry of Magic, today. And we want to remind you, the listeners, to make sure and read that chapter before listening to the show so you can get the most out of our discussion. Yes, and before we uh, talk about The Ministry of Magic, we're going to get into some of the comments that our listeners have written in uh, regarding last episode episode's discussion on Chapter 6. The first comment is a question coming from Steph on Facebook, who asks, Do you think, with Molly's emotional state, that the Horcrux is affecting her more than the others in the Black House, like with Ron in Deathly Hallows? Um, I know neither of us were on uh, last week's episode, but uh, giving it a listen, we did discuss uh, Molly's kind of overbearing, you know, overprotectiveness, and now Steph is wondering if that could be attributed to uh, the Horcrux playing on her fears as a mother. Um, I would have to disagree just because I don't think Molly's behavior is uncharacteristic at all, um, not just of her, but just of most mothers, and that would be put in that situation. Um and I don't necessarily think the Horcrux being, like, tucked away in the closet is greatly affecting the people around them so much. Like, when it, you know, it affected them more when they, like, had it around their neck. Um, mm, it could yeah. be adding to, like, a pretty grim, tense environment, but I don't think it would be affecting her that drastically. And I don't think her behavior is uncalled for or uncharacteristic being. Who I would tend is. to agree. It's a really cool idea, but I think. From also from Deathly Hallows, we have evidence, as Laura said, that that's not the case because Mrs. Weasley acts pretty much the exact same way when Harry, Ron, and Hermione are trying to talk to each other about what they have to do with the Horcruxes, mm-hmm. um, and this kind of issue of how she interferes with uh, knowledge and plans kind of um, comes to light again. So, uh, yeah, I, I think even though nobody's particularly happy to be staying in Grimmauld Place. Uh, I don't think it's the Horcruxes or everything that's contributing to that. I think it's more the situation that we're in. Um, well, I would tend to agree with the both of you, and I have to say, uh, however, uh, regarding last week's discussion, I was blown away by the implication that the Horcrux did attract all of those dark creatures to that same room, that that was the room that was so difficult to clean uh, mm. as a as a mm. potential side effect of the dark nature of the Horcrux. So I did think that was uh, yeah, very exciting. That is and we, we do want to thank uh, Steph for asking the question. I think one other thing we could add in is that the Bogarts really describe Molly's emotional state. Uh, and when she sees the, the death of her children, I think that's subconsciously and consciously her worst fear. And uh, I would argue that that's one of the reasons she's acting the way she is with or without the Horcrux. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it was mentioned on the last episode as well that um, the thing that kind of, because I know a lot of the listeners were actually being pretty hard on Molly in our comments um, <laughs> these past few weeks. And um, uh, last week it was mentioned that uh, as a reminder that her brothers, the Pruitts, did pass away um, during the war. They were killed during the last war. Um, so she's already lost very close family members mm-hmm. um, to a war. And to think that, you know, she has a brood of, you know, so many children, plus Harry and Hermione, to worry about now. And the whole Percy thing happening. And Mm. the whole Percy thing. 
So, uh, the next comment I'd like to bring up comes from Surprisingly Swishy um, on our <laughs> Alohomora main site. Uh, the comment says, In the podcast, someone asked which family you would rather be a part of, the Blacks, the Tonks, or the Malfoys. I think the point of the family tree in the book is to say that it doesn't matter what family you're a part of. The three sisters were all raised in the same household, and they took totally different paths in life, which proves what's already been proven so many times before, that it's your choices. The family tree shows us that all of these people are a part of the same family, but who their family was didn't matter as much as the choices they made as individuals. A good comment from Surprisingly Swishy. Yeah, I think it's definitely, that's made abundantly clear and this that everyone went on different paths i mean the majority of them took the darker path but there can always be exceptions and there's a few something about the lestranges really attracted noah he said that he would join the lestranges on the last chapter but uh <laughs> pretty I, sure the that's answer is the talk. that's noah we're just not sure about him um <laughs> <laughs> that well and you know this comment just i think points out what's a really great thing i think especially about um, Order of the Phoenix in, in and its role in the series is, uh, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit before, but just that um, it's the book where kind of there's a little less black and white going on in uh, each of the characters. We start to see a lot more layered um, kind of motivations from everybody and things become a little more complicated. Things People that you thought were flat out bad and flat out good suddenly don't seem that way anymore. Um, uh, I will tell you that um, in, in, in the world I worked in, the world of, of espionage and clandestine operations, as you go into the field, you, you become very quickly aware of the absences of blacks and whites. Mm. It becomes very gray uh, because in many cases you are working with people who on the face of it may appear very black or even very white. But because of your unique position and insight, you discern the grayness. You see the black in the white and the white in the black. So that part of the book struck me as very real. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's beautifully put. <laughs> and isn't it, isn't it fascinating that the black sheep of the black family, the ones that rebel, are the ones that end up going towards uh, the good side, if you will. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, and and more to the point, the, the black sheep is is seriously black. <laughs> he's, he's serious black. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, there are so many black puns, fun black puns. We were talking about that. Uh, I think that'll be a continuing discussion for this book. Our final comment <laughs> comes from uh, another one of our favorite usernames, uh, Accio Potassium, uh, who says... I might have found some more to add to the symbolism of the black family, as as shown in this chapter. The rusty daggers may represent the black family's long history of backstabbing to gain a more powerful position in wizarding government. Another idea could be that the daggers are from the story of the great Shakespearean play Macbeth. The coiled snakeskin we saw could embody the Blacks' tradition of being almost completely Slytherin, uh, pure blood, as they constantly are trying to remove uh, mud from their family tree. 
and the ornate crystal bottle may symbolize the blacks' moral belief of being kept pure throughout their history, while the large opal signifies the superiority of being a purely magical family, and the blood indicates the extensive family bloodline. Wow. (laughs) That was thought out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... I think, you know, I don't think J.K. Rowling particularly does anything carelessly, and I think just because all of these things are very visual and very, you know, she does take the time to describe all this. It could just be, you know, to set the scene of this being, like, a creepy, like, hell on earth, but um, but also very Victorian. Um, I do think that maybe not down to, like, every little last thing, but I do think stuff like the snakeskin and the daggers are definitely meant to, if not symbolize things, but symbolize something directly, at least paint a picture of who these people were, and that does it very well. Agreed. I like the reference to uh, the Shakespeare and Macbeth. Uh, one of the things that Peter and I wrestled with in our book is to, how often do we bring in the references such as uh, Macbeth and and the witches and the prophecy and, of course, the dagger that Macbeth sees. And, and for what it's worth, uh, about a month ago on April 16th, I, uh, in front of four judges, represented Macbeth and Lady Macbeth on a continuing legal education uh, I'm afraid that uh, Macbeth ended up going back to jail, but Lady Macbeth, uh, they allowed her to have a hearing to determine if she was competent to stand trial. <laughs> well. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, um, Lynn, when you, I remember you told me about that case, and it will be interesting if any of you go back after uh, recent uh, trials of notorious spies and I'll pick uh, Aldrich James, who was the CIA turncoat, and Robert Hansen, who was the FBI turncoat. In in all, in both those instances, uh, the court, uh, in effect, bargained with the defendants so that in exchange for their agreeing to life in prison, uh, the wives uh, were in at least one case uh, let off with a much, much lesser uh, penance of, of seven years. I think she was out in five. And in the case of Hanson, she got to keep part of his pension, a uh, part of his pension. So that's very true to life to the to the uh, mock court that you participated in, Lynn. Yeah. Well, that I find that to be very fascinating. Yeah, and we want to also just thank our listeners. It's we say this every week, but it bears mentioning still um, the sheer amount of comments that we receive, and you know, pairing it down to three, uh, we think we received around 140. So thank you. Please keep commenting and continuing on our comments for uh, last week. We're going to move into our podcast question of the week responses. So last week it was asked that, all right, so this chapter and the ones right before it have had two prominent mother figures, Mrs. Black and Mrs. Weasley. Our question is as follows. Does Sirius have issues with Molly Weasley because she's a strong mother figure, um, and he has bad personal experience with his strong mother figure? Um, what about Harry? Does he have similar issues with Molly that are somehow rooted in his childhood interactions with Willie? So... Leading into our first comment, okay, this is by Elvis Gaunt. It says, We surely see some similarities between Mrs. Black and Mrs. Weasley, with both of them shouting a lot, but I think it's purely superficial. 
Molly tries to mother Harry, not Sirius. Molly is in total agreement with Dumbledore that Harry should not be given any information, Sirius should not go to the trial with Harry, etc. Sirius resents Dumbledore and shows this resentment towards her when she seconds Dumbledore's opinions. I don't think Sirius has a resentment towards all mother figures because he said he was accepted as a second son by the Potters and he liked it there. Just like Harry hates the Dursleys but loves the Weasleys' home because they treat him as their seventh son. Both of them grew up as ba- grew up with bad parents, and they just hated that particular particular set that they had. Not all parents. Harry, on the other hand, resents Mrs. Weasley just like any teenager would when they told they are too young for something by their parent. Oh, great analysis by Elvis Gaunt there. I tend to agree for sure. Yeah, and that was definitely um, the majority of the comments and response. Uh, I think everyone, without any. Um, Opposing views agreed that Harry was just resenting Mrs. Weasley, not for any deep-set issues, but just because he's a teenager being told he can't do something that he wants to do. Well, it's not like, because, you know, it was noted last week by the hosts that, um, you know, this is kind of the first proper mother figure Harry's had in his life. And it kind of the, that I think that's partly where this, you know, idea came from uh, with this question. And... Because, you know, it's like he's he's had but he he's had guardians who have told him no a lot. Um, so and he he doesn't really like to be told no anymore these days. Um, Harry and Sirius definitely seem to be relating a lot more as far as I think the issue isn't so much perhaps parental figures as it is authority figures. Right. And um, at this point. And that's pretty much exactly what this next um, point um their thesis is as well. From Leslie Lovegood, it says, I think serious problem with Molly spawns from two things, neither of which are related to his mother. The first of which is that Sirius simply doesn't like being told what to do. We know that he never has, which is why he is always in trouble in his youth. At this point, everyone seems to be telling Sirius what to do, and that lack of freedom is coming to a boiling point. The other thing is that he doesn't like that Molly is challenging him over his guardianship of Harry. Sirius loves Harry probably more than anyone left on Earth. We know he feels extremely guilty about James and Lily's deaths, and he would do anything to keep his godson safe. Molly is implying that Sirius isn't doing what is best for Harry. Mix that with the fact that Sirius wants to protect Harry, but at the same time be his best mate, and Sirius just explodes on Molly. So that's pretty much what you were saying, in that it's just, he, he came from being, you know, wrongly imprisoned for all these years, and then now, you know, got, you know, the pseudo-freedom, but he's still being caged up. And being yeah. told what he can and can't do, and he is a grown man and who's been prone to not listening before, so... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's deep-set mother issues, necessarily. Plus the fact that he's living in this house that he hates and did not want to be in, and also that Harry is, well, along with Lupin, Harry is kind of Sirius's last connection to his past, and kind of a more striking connection in the way that of course Harry looks like James and you know this is definitely I feel played up more this is something that the movie decided to cut interestingly um that the book definitely plays into a lot which is that Sirius sees Harry as a BFF as kind of the new James and it's um remember at the end he does say nice one James when they're fighting yeah 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 so they kind of slip that in in the movie which was a bit out of place compared to how they portrayed the rest of it but but yeah, no, it's 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 a it's kind of a precarious situation here where like like Leslie Lovegood is saying Sirius wants to be both godfather and 
best friend. Well, Lynn and uh, Peter, I did want to ask how you guys uh, feel about Sirius uh, Black, his character in this book, as he's being told that he cannot go outside, and he's sort of trying to struggle with guiding Harry, but he's 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 falling short because he's not really allowed out. And given the eventual conclusion of this book, um, sort of what are your thoughts on Sirius, I guess, as a character, and sort of what he has to do, what, what purpose he fills in this book? Well, I think Peter should handle that because he's had to be deep cover, and he's been in places assigned by the CIA where, frankly... Uh, he were probably in places where he didn't want to be and was getting no information and was stuck there. So let's let Peter handle that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I, li- I like your analogy. I was stuck in places I didn't want to be. Uh, <laughs> but that was because of cover. And, and I don't think that's uh, – I know we're projecting ahead and we want to focus on the uh, Chapter 7. Sure, sure, sure. But um, in the case of Sirius um, – it's almost like he's a prisoner of ideology. In other words, he, he's. It, it's not clear to me why he can't get out. I understand that he can't. Uh, but what's circumscribing him? I, I, Lynn, I've got to believe you have a better idea on Sirius than I do as to his circumstances in this book. Well, I guess my, my gut reaction is is that he feels trapped, like has been discussed at the last uh, uh, podcast, uh, that he has to stay there because if he is captured, you know, they're afraid he'll get shucked back into Azkaban. Um, and so he feels useless and unable to do anything. Uh, and so I understand the psychology that he's dealing with. Um, whether or not he should be able to just get out and leave and find a different place, uh, I guess that's his choice to have to stay there. Um, obviously, it's a safe house uh, from a spy world standpoint. Uh, no one can see it. No one can get in there. And so from a, a standpoint of just the, uh, laying low and being covert, it's a perfect place for him. But he clearly doesn't like it. Yeah, I, I would draw an analogy with, uh, in a number of instances, uh, we recruited people to be what we called stay-behind assets. That is, um, they were they were like sleeper agents. And uh, we would recruit them, and, and they would simply go on about their lives. The idea was that if war came and that country was, was overrun, they would be our contacts, our agents, our assets within. I, the, I would ask you to think of the of the resistance during World War II, uh, where a number of people rose up uh, against their against the German occupiers, but some of those folks were trapped in that situation. They could not show their opposition overtly. They couldn't do anything. They sort of just had to stay in place. In some cases, they were activated. Uh, in some cases, they they wrote out the war, uh, as Lynn would say, trapped in a safe house. Well, and Sirius is also, he has an important role in the sense that he's providing headquarters, uh, which is, again, both a safe house when uh, Mr. Weasley is injured and, and other things. Um, and so he, he does have an important role. And since it is headquarters, his staying there allows him to be in the action, even if it's from the inside. Yeah, he definitely plays an important role in the order. And I think, you know, because he's not doing, I think one listener put it like the fun order tasks, but um, he's, you know, bummed out about it, but he's still playing a very important role. 
Well, thank you again, listeners, for all of your fantastic comments on last week's question of the week. And with that, we head into Chapter 7 of Order of the Phoenix. Welcome, listener, to Chapter 7. The Ministry of Magic. For the very first time, readers of the series and Harry head to the Ministry of Magic after receiving advice from members of the Order on his upcoming hearing. Following a brief trip through Muggle London during which Mr. Weasley once again marvels at Muggle technology, Harry experiences the Ministry firsthand, including entry via a telephone box, a wand security scan, the first sighting of the symbolically charged Fountain of Magical Brethren, peering into the Ministry's various departments, and seeing Kingsley Shacklebolt actively double-crossing his ministry superiors. Arriving early in an attempt to calm his nerves, Harry is immediately thrust back into panic mode when Mr. Weasley's co-worker informs them that the time and location for Harry's hearing has been changed. No longer a simple interview with Amelia Bones, the hearing is now located in the ministry's infamous Department of Mysteries, with the full Wizengamot panel in attendance, and despite a rushed trip down the lift... Harry arrives outside the courtroom door more than five minutes late. So, with that, we are going to take a field trip of sorts to the Ministry of Magic in this chapter and explore a little bit. Before we leave Grimald Place, uh, there's a few little minor points to uh, make sure and highlight. Uh, one of them is uh, that this uh, moment happens uh, from the book, page 122. Lupin glanced at Harry, then said to Tonks, what were you saying about Scrimjaw? Oh, yeah. Well, we need to be a bit more careful. He's been asking Kingsley and me funny questions. So, of course, this is the first major name drop of Rufus Scrimjaw in the series. will become a major character later on. Future um, Minister of Magic. Future Minister of Magic. But for now, simply head of the Auror Office at the Ministry. Uh, Tonks also references her Nightwatch at the Department of Mystery, she's not the first character to do so, and she certainly won't be the last. Um, continuing these uh, kind of slow burn hints that everybody in the Order is participating in watching something at the Department of Mysteries. I will say just because you use that term on slow burn hints, I was just, from re. I like will admit I got a little ahead of myself rereading, like I got sucked into it again. But mm -hmm. this is. We, we've kind of made fun of how the previous books have, like, hit you over the head with the foreshadowing. Um, mm -hmm. This book is much better in truly having those subtle things, like, go by without you really noticing that they're important. And then, you know, they turn out to be majorly important. So I've been enjoying that. Well, and that's... I was going to ask Peter and Lynn, actually, with with thinking about that. As, as readers who are kind of a little more, perhaps tuned in to analyze things closely um, than the casual reader. Would you guys, per I don't know, may perhaps if you remember your early readings of the series, but were you able to pick up on these hints that Rowling lays out? Well, some of them are, are obvious, but some of them, you know, you're shocked at the, uh, the end as well. Uh, but one of the subtleties I'll tie into is when Tonks refers to, you know, not wanting to do the night watch, Notice she says, I'll have to tell Dumbledore, Dumbledore I can't do night duty tomorrow. 
And I think that's a very subtle reference that Dumbledore is acting as the handler for all of these various people of the Order of the Phoenix. I mean, he truly is in charge and sending them out and, and giving them assignments. So I thought that was a, a nice subtle reference to who's really running the Order of the Phoenix and the members. Yeah, mm. that's very true. You know what, what's funny? Uh, if I could just real quick, what, what's really funny about that is I was uh, listening to the audiobook um, catching up, and Tonks is uh, so exhausted, I guess, from her, you know, recent duty. Um, and while she's saying uh, that she is going to have to call in and that sort of thing, she's yawning. And now, Jim Dale, I, I never grew up listening to his audiobooks, but I have to say, you know how they say when a that a yawn is contagious? When he, <laughs> as Tonks, was yawning three times, all three times, I was yawning with him. I was like, man, this order duty is totally taking it out of me. I'm so tired. Stop it, Jim Dale. Stop it. I just yawned. It was unbelievable. I yawned when I read it. <laughs> but this <laughs> is the first this is the first fun chapter in Order of the Phoenix. And not not for the least of reasons, which is that you get to see the wizarding government. But chapter seven, this this is finally where for me the book really became fun kind of back to the way that the the previous books had um it's just it's a lot of information but as as you were saying it's 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 hidden well um and kind of packed layer upon layer very smartly by joe and peter what did you want to say about some of the hints that rolling drops well no i i just wanted to come in on that business of about uh it's clear that you know there's somebody assigning them to duties and also the whole business of the night watch um, much of, of my career uh, was spent looking at deception, uh, particularly organizations that were deceptive by their very nature, mm. and trying to discern, you know, who was giving the orders, uh, who was carrying them out. But the other thing that struck me so strongly was, and this now goes back to my days in the Marine Corps, um, when when people are assigned a duty, particularly night duty, particularly things that are inherently boring or stretched out, it is hard. You're fighting, uh, trying to stay awake. You're fighting the situation. One of the fascinating things about uh, an organization like the Marine Corps or any other kinds of elite organizations is people are recruited into those organizations because they're very action-oriented. Uh, they are very, uh, they are risk takers, uh, they are physically usually fit, and often we put them into situations like guarding embassies and so forth that do not call, by and large, on those qualities. Uh -huh. There's no action. Uh, there's nothing to do. You spend hours, and uh, maybe just in one place. Now, that doesn't mean that from time to time the whole place falls apart and there's an attack like Benghazi or anything else. Um, and that's the, that's the real challenge for people is to be in situations like that and to try and rise above your your inclination to, to in effect, go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, no, I I think that's a great... You know, it's, it, it's funny. Uh, sadly, because I'm... Uh, terribly ignorant on the spy front and am more into the media arts myself. The way that you were summarizing kind of the, you know, because from, from literature and whatnot, I guess 
we as you know consumers of entertainment get this idea that doing something like guarding a treasure or, or something an important document is very exciting and something's going to happen at any minute um but people don't account for the real life fact that you know it's actually a lot of waiting around um yes. in yes. reality cuz yeah. um i was thinking in terms of like making a movie um a lot of people who make movies you know everybody thinks it's very <laughs> glamorous and exciting but it is not the same thing most the majority of movie making is waiting around for something to happen yeah um, it's kind of that same idea that you just have to sit and wait. Um, but And it is a shame, like you said, because you're, you're recruiting people who, who have that drive to go immediately. Yes. And, so. and Tonks, as an auror, is used to hunting down, you know, offenders and, and mm-hmm. all that, used to being on the road. Whereas this night duty, you know, as we know Boring. from future chapters, it's guarding a weapon that is kind of a weapon, I guess. I, I always have to be like, it's kind of a weapon. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, she's guarding and it's a lot of standing around, as you say, um, mm-hmm. for her in particular. Information is a weapon, by the way. Oh, yes. Oh, and that, yes. that was a topic that was, uh, you know, talked about last uh, episode. And I fully agree that information is a weapon. Um, but I think when reading the books as young teenagers and uh, Lupin and Sirius are telling Harry Voldemort's after something he didn't have before a weapon, we're thinking it's like a really large wand. Of course. Well, and I think, well, and I think that's why, as kind of the, why the, what Lynn pointed out is what's so brilliant in this particular situation is that the weapon is not at all what you as a reader would assume it to be. Um, I think young readers would assume that it is like a awesome wand and the funny thing is once it gets to deathly hallows and it is an awesome wand i know there are a lot of readers who are not happy with that <laughs> well it's um, it's not just young people who can be uh, uh enchanted by the concept of a weapon uh professor umbridge is uh, uh taken into the uh, forbidden yeah. forest by hermione by saying that well the weapon's ready uh, yeah obsessed well, with true. the concept <laughs> definitely that's true definitely um, but uh, uh, now that we've left Grimald Place and we have all apparated to the entrance to the Ministry, you will notice that it is not exactly what you would expect. We are standing outside of a telephone box, which for you kids out there who didn't live in the times of payphones and telephone boxes being all over the place, <laughs> that that looks like a little red box that you just step into. It's just about fit for maybe two people really comfortably. Um, and, uh, that is our entrance. That is our visitor entrance, notably to the ministry. Um, interestingly, there is a certain number that you have to dial, um, to get into the ministry. And I'm actually going, I have a phone that makes noise. Phones used to make noise kids. Um, (laughs) and, (laughs) and when you dialed, you would hear something kind of like this. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Except I'm pretty sure that the ministry one is even like a rotary. Is that what they call rotary phone? The, the, I wasn't the... sure if it, I think I, I wasn't sure if it was a rotary or a pay phone. Yeah, I but... think it says it rolls back into position as he uh, But it said... would make it would make so it would be like Well yeah. <laughs> And it, it does also make a reference to the word dial, but remember even the old dial phones had the letters next to mm-hmm. the numbers. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think Laura just a while ago said everything that J.K. Rowling did has meaning. And just in the first book, uh, for example, in the, on the top of the mirror of said, there are those letters 
that those of us who really were interested in Coase were able to break that down into one full English sentence, and yes. she never tells you what that was, and you have to figure it out. And of course, 62442, I'm sure we'll get to it, uh, that spells out a very specific uh, word in English. Yes, if, listeners, if you're if you don't know this particular code, just for a moment, just glance at your phone and look at the little letters. Um, see if you can figure it out. Um, these letters actually came to prominence in the fandom through J.K. Rowling's website, um, her early version of the website. If there was a little cell phone on the uh, on the desk um, on the on the web page, and if you dialed this number, you would actually get. Um, a early draft of Sorcerer's Stone where Ron and Hermione accuse Harry's parents of stealing the Sorcerer's Stone. Just figured um, it out. Laura, <laughs> <laughs> I was Laura. like staring at my phone. I like, and if I can interject, since uh, Peter and I have been working on this book and I've gone to the International Spy Museum probably, oh, I don't know, four or five times where we'd spend a whole week just going word for word on it. And every place I went, both there and when I've guest lectured as a college professor um, or otherwise in high schools, I would give this number out and see if people could figure it out. And here's the most fascinating thing that's happened as a result. Two things. One, ages, kids, to adults of all ages, have loved tried to fig- trying to figure it out. Most people take about five or ten minutes. But the person out of about 500 people I've tried this on, and that includes spies, people at the NSA, people at the CIA, uh, school teachers, the best person who's done it so far was a young girl in her homeroom class. She's in seventh grade in Red Lodge, Montana. She did it without looking at a phone. She did it in her head in less than 10 seconds. Now that <laughs> That's is a future spy, I believe. When you give them that challenge, do you give them the context or do you tell them it's from Harry Potter or do you just tell them this, this set of numbers – decodes a word i definitely i give them the context as a matter of fact in our book oh. the, left, the left front cover of our book the harry potter and the artist spine has both mm-hmm. the mirror of error said where it tells you where it comes from and it tries to let you figure it out and then on the bottom half we have this and the context is of course as we all know just what we just discussed uh they go into the ministry of magic by getting in through the phone booth uh, and then, of course, I refer to them that Harry remembers that number later when he and his friends uh, fly there on the Thestrals and get in. And uh, that shows what a good observer Harry is and that he's becoming a spy. And he's breaking, you know, codes and or using codes. And um, so, yeah, it's it's been fun. And it's again, I'm constantly amazed how many, how many people just love trying to figure out that particular code. But I do put it in context, yes. Now, I, I cannot imagine, though, just going back to doing that in your head because uh, for me, it, 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 it's so confusing because the, the number one doesn't have any letters associated with and both seven and nine have four letters associated, instead of three, instead of the usual three. So I would never be able to figure it out. Well, I went to her classroom yesterday in her English classroom and described it without telling the class who figured it out. And after discussing these two codes, I uh, gave her a signed copy, advanced copy of our book. And uh, I didn't want to use the word witch, but so I put on it that you're the smartest uh, person in your class. I thought the parents may not uh, appreciate me saying that she's the smartest witch in her class. Sure, 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 sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and speaking of references, this telephone box could possibly be seen. And I know this was actually mentioned um, in your guys' book, uh, as a Doctor Who reference, 
or homage. Um, I don't know if we actually have confirmation that that's intentional on Rowling's part. It would seem to be quite obvious. I never got it because I saw, I experienced Doctor Who after I read Harry Potter. Um, and in a way, the, the telephone box has become in its own kind of iconic thing for the Harry Potter uh, readers. Uh, I think um, for quite a while, I was hoping I could find one and dial 62442 and see where I could get. <laughs> so, um, and the interesting thing to note, too, about the telephone boxes, um, uh, they are the interesting thing about that as an entrance to the ministry uh, is that the, the employees, as we later find out, enter through the toilets. Um, <laughs> they actually flush themselves down at such a le- less glamorous oh, no, entrance. No, than that the was just, box, I right? think that was only after the negative was that imposed took over and it was like imposed as a, like, I degrading wasn't sure, thing. but well, this is described as being the muggle entrance, isn't it? Um, yeah, the visitor, the visitor this is the visitor's visitor entrance. entrance. And then the employees, what I love about the toilets, if I could say, is that the, the idea of the government workers as being public servants, that mm. they are legit, like they are completely submitting themselves. They're flushing themselves. And, and it also speaks to the place, you know, oh, what a great place to work. I get there via toilet. Um, <laughs> just for those implications, for those reasons, I really do like the toilets. But the phone, bo- phone box, I feel the same way um, that I too have often dial that number and just wait to be taken down. It's hard being our generation, right? We're waiting to, we're looking for telephone boxes, we're looking for police boxes, and we're waiting for owls. And still it's... waiting for our Hogwarts letter to <laughs> yeah. So you know, Let me just, um, I want to make some comments about the ministry itself. Yes. Oh, yes, please. Uh, but, 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 but I want to stay with you all for a moment with the phone boxes and the toilet bowls. Um, in the case when when you're going to see you're you're reading about two worlds the muggles world the world of the muggles and Harry Potter's world Mm -hmm. and I lived in another world a third world which is a world of secrets a world of of, there are any number of spies in the city where I am Washington D.C. they don't have the word spy written on their forehead you don't know who they are all right but they're there. If you suddenly had them light up, if you had some device, you'd be stunned. And the thing is that in many cases, when we train people to become uh, non-official cover agents, that is to go into the field not as American officials, but undercover, often we do not bring them into headquarters. We have them train somewhere else. And, and if they were to come into headquarters, which we do from time to time, they might be brought in under a cover situation, uh, not necessarily a toilet, which is interesting, <laughs> but um, the idea of the phone booth, which of course has been used by Maxwell Smart and all sorts of other people, is not that bizarre. When we have set up uh, secret sites often the entrance to those sites is made to look like anything else on the street, whether it's a small shop or a business firm or Mm. something. But it looks anything other than having anything to do with the intelligence agency. And as as we get into the ministry, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. But this idea of a covert entrance a sort of almost a silly entrance, 
that to me is very natural. Yeah, no, it's actually, this is what's so interesting about having you guys on for me is that I've just never really equated Harry Potter with the kind of the spy and intrigue um, concepts and ideas. And so to like to kind of put it in that context, this is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, Cause of course, yeah, that's, that's the whole idea is the, is this idea of concealment um, of something really grand and supposed to be major, major secret being hidden under perfectly ordinary things, which is definitely exactly, exactly. modus operandi. And you'll um, notice that J.K. Rowling also does this throughout the series. I mean, the muggles, I mean, they have to dress up as muggles uh, to get in uh, to uh, not only the visitor's entrance at the Ministry of Magic, but in St. Mungles. I mean, it looks like something else. Uh, uh, headquarters, uh, number 12 Grimwald Place, uh, you know, disappears, so to speak, and, and can't be seen unless the secret keeper gives you the information. Uh, it's our position, and one of the reasons we wrote the book is that uh, the entire series shows spycraft at its best, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to the double agents. Yeah, and at, to to analyze things further, since going off of the point that Harry is a very excellent observer, we are now in level eight of the ministry, which is the atrium, and we look down the hall and we see. What is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating uh, objects in the Harry Potter series, actually, as a whole. It is the Fountain of Magical Brethren. And this fountain is it is unexpectedly important, um, not only to this book, but future ones. Um, as we see, there is a witch and a wizard, as well as, I believe, a goblin, a, a house elf, and a centaur in this fountain. Um and it's such an interesting uh the, the way that the figures are placed and the way that the, and the particular name of the statue um kind of are at odds with each other uh and harry notes that the wizard looks very grand as does the witch and that the other three kind of look a bit servile um in comparison and uh of course if you look at the name it is the fountain of magical brethren brethren meaning brother um it's kind of a a more it's usually used in religious circles uh, that term and uh, brother brethren also kind of implies equality but that's mm-hmm. certainly not what this statue <laughs> represents um by the by the way that harry observes it both the first time and the second time can i i just i thought something was interesting just in the creature cuz obviously there's a million magical creatures but yeah. the um the creatures that they chose were mm-hmm. the ones that can also speak? Am I correct? Like it was like a centaur, a goblin, yes. and a house elf. Am I correct? Or mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So those are, as far as I could tell, the like three like major speaking um, mm-hmm. creatures. That's interesting. And they're the ones that also are the most um, at odds with wizards as far as their equality as being like subhuman or whatnot. So I just I thought it was interesting that. It was almost, you know, they're they're accepted into wizard society, so it's like, oh, you get to be in the statue, but you're at that <laughs> part of the statue, like versus, you know, an owl or something that's like straight up an animal. So I just thought it was an interesting choice. And importantly, notice it describes the last three: the centaur, goblin, and house elf, looking adoringly up at the yeah. wizards. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is. I, I think a real a, a fission point or fissure point, I should say, because this shows perhaps the the weakness or the pride before the fall 
in regards to they're showing that everyone looks up at the Wizards. How far away is that from young Dumbledore accepting uh, a concept of, uh, well, we'll be in charge of everybody, including the Muggles, uh, a sense of utilitarianism because that's what's best for everybody because we're in charge. And that's what that statute's saying is that it is an elitist concept, no doubt about it. Uh, let me, if, if I could, um, when I hear you say, you know, you go into the entrance and you look down at the atrium and so forth, if you go into the entrance of any modern intelligence agency, it, you are, to a degree, you are awestruck. Mm. Uh, it is a, it is, uh, a place of secrets. Uh, you are there and you're escorted through some sort of visitor protocol. Um, there are people around you, uh, but it's typically, physically, it's a very awe-inspiring place uh, to pick up a bit on your the statues and things. If you go into the entrance of CIA, there is in the front of that building a statue of Nathan Hale, a man who was standing there with his hands tied behind him, and he has been hanged. That's an extraordinary oh. thing to put in front of a major executive facility in a city of granite statues, Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. When you then go into the atrium, these are large marble-covered halls. This is the place where it says, uh, the truth shall make you free. There is a large statue of one of the wizards of intelligence, and that was Donovan who created the Office of Strategic Services, and he looks down on you, and at his feet is a notebook with people who belonged in OSS, some of whom were Soviet penetrations. And on the far wall is our memorial wall. It is a wall of stars, and those stars speak to you because they are the stars of the officers who have fallen and who have been placed on that wall and in many cases, we cannot know their names or their backgrounds. And so you are in a place, and, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not using this loosely, almost of worship. So that if we just for a moment think of the Ministry of Magic as sort of a CIA or MI6, if you want, kind of place of power and secrets and layers and and incorporating some of the, if you want, the sacredness of how the people regard themselves. And I note also that uh, the science and technology directorate at the CIA, they have several books that have been written about them. One of them is called The Wizards of Langley. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. Well, and that's that's just a perfect deconstruction because what's so interesting as far as Harry's relation to the fountain is he he notices it and takes it in and kind of thinks it's nice. But um, when he, after his hearing, and I'm sure they'll get to this af in a few chapters, but after his hearing, he completely sees the statue in a different light um, and kind of sees it as this false representation of wizard ideals of how their world is. Um, so Harry picks up on that pretty early. Um, but the fountain will come back, so it is just worth keeping note of. And uh, as we journey further into the ministry, we have to receive a security scan on our wand. 
Interestingly, when you get a security scan of your wand, you get you the ministry gets all of your details about your wand, and then you get it back, <laughs> um, which seems somewhat impractical, especially if you're there for a hearing um, for committing a crime with magic. Um, I, I will tell you, if you visit a major intelligence agency today, mm-hmm. when you go through the visitors' station, they take away your wand. Yeah, that that's that's what I figured was like if you had a, a weapon of some sort. No, 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 no. They take away your wand. What is the modern wand? Cell phone. It's your cell phone. <laughs> and they keep it. <laughs> and you get it back when you leave. Peter and I were just at a conference uh, last week uh, in D.C. at the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And uh, they told everybody, don't bring your phones, don't bring computers. And indeed, they had a lockbox on the outside at the visitor's entrance where if you had any of those things, they gave you a key and you had to lock it there. And you you could not have that in there. And so uh, the security at the Ministry of Magic is just like anywhere else in the spy world. You know, I think that part of the reason that, that, again, Harry gets his wand back um, is perhaps due to the fact that the government refuses to acknowledge uh, Voldemort's return. And so they're still in a sort of in a very lax state of security, whereas years later, people's wands are getting snapped in half at the ministry. Well, Um, also, at the same time, I think it's worth noting, at least, that this kind of disenthused... um, person that's doing this, the securities kind of just you, doing you whatever. You can call him by his name. His name is Eric. <laughs> oh, Eric. Okay. Um, he, right. you know, he, he doesn't really like care to even necessarily look up and it's only as kind of as he's leaving that he's like, wait a minute, like you're Harry. And that, and you know, maybe that's just, you know, the general wizarding reaction. Uh, but it could also be, Oh, you know, this is a high security, not necessarily high security, but like someone that's, who's, uh, running with the law is like right now in contention and then mr weasley kind of like shuffles him away like okay like keep moving like they didn't take your wand away <laughs> um i'm not sure if those things are necessarily related but i do think that it would have been more practical in the ministry's part to take his wand away because if they were going to then destroy it then there wouldn't need to be a struggle pretty much later um, yeah that's a good point but you're, you're dealing with a ministry here that is perpetuating a chronic intelligence failure The refusal to acknowledge Voldemort's return, that is an absolute existential intelligence failure because it threatens their world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. This is, it's just, you know, one of the many things we'll see in, in throughout this book and even leading up to Deathly Hallows, just failure after failure of keeping things truly secure Mm. and even as we'll see with the serious stuff like the amount of effort that's being put towards the serious investigation even if it's not a legitimate investigation you know they're just where their priorities lie is just absurd right resources are being wasted well Um, and speaking of security failures let's just nab a few of these interdepartmental memos out of the air that are (laughs) just floating around our heads oh you can't touch them they'll zap you (laughs) <laughs> oh, is that the rule, Eric? Yeah, that's the rule. Those zap you. Eric knows this because he's security. We'll give you a paper cut. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you a paper cut. I will say the security guy, very nonplussed. And as a young kid, I was so happy to read my name in a Harry Potter book. I, I resolved to have a more exciting job, no matter how old I got, to, to, to be more <laughs> pleased with my job than this man, Eric, is in the books. 
Um, and, I mean, he's at the Ministry of Magic. How cool would that be, right? But like anything, it's just part of the security check-in process. Give me your wand. I'll give you this paper. And then you get your wand back. <laughs> Fairly kind of uninteresting, but and, highly important. <laughs> but as we snatch at the interdepartmental memos, we find ourselves in the elevator um, heading upwards because the ministry is so far underground. So we are going up levels from level eight uh, to level th- uh, we'll, we'll be going to level two. Um, and there are quite a few departments in between, um, very interesting departments. And, uh, it, uh, this part of the book speaks to how the ministry is set up as a system. And actually, interestingly, I, uh, when I was reading, uh, the excerpt that we received of your guys' book, I, uh, read that, uh, excellent, uh, paper that you guys linked to called Harry Potter and the Law. And, um, it, which discussed, uh, the bureaucratic setup of the Ministry of Magic and that, uh, we, what we see are multiple departments that are pretty much self-governed and don't really have to report to anybody because the idea that we will, uh, that we have already learned is that department heads eventually have the chance to make Minister of Magic. And from what we know of the Harry Potter series, they are never voted into power. Uh, they are selected in-house, possibly by the Wizengamot. Um, but uh, thanks to the extended canon of Harry Potter and Rowling's additional writings uh, throughout the years, such as Pottermore, as well as the extra school books she wrote, two of which we had by the time Order of the Phoenix came out, uh, there is much further elaboration on each department's internal chaos. Uh, if you check out Pottermore's sections on Flu Powder, the Hogwarts Express, and the Night Bus, and the Quidditch World Cup, even the current ones that Rowling is writing as we speak... Um, as well as Fantastic Beasts' entire first introductory chapter where Newt Scamander summarizes the disasters of the regulation control of magical creatures in their attempts to sort beasts and beings, <laughs> um, and as well as to classify and hide magical beasts, uh, we see that the, depart- the, the entire Ministry of Magic is already kind of unhinged to begin with, um, a pretty dangerous place. Uh, I don't know... Uh, Peter and Lynn, if if you want to speak to that, if if that, I I wouldn't want to ask too deeply about how things are set up in places like the CIA. But, <laughs> well, I'll make but, I'll make one comment, and that's one of my favorite lines: "God so loved the world, he did not send a committee." <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk about the CIA bureaucracy. I'll have to let Peter do that. Well, bureaucracies are bureaucracies. Okay, um, I think. What was very personal for me, uh, and and I'm Michael. I think it was your story, or perhaps it was Eric. You know, when you said when I was growing up, I've got to get an exciting job, and so. Oh yes, forth. that was Eric. <laughs> yeah, when I well, when I was growing up, for many years, I I was very interested in magic. I was an amateur magician, and eventually, and somebody told me when I was very young, you're going to go into, and I don't know what word he used. Might have been intelligence. I didn't know what he was talking about, but in later years when I professionally was involved in uh, deception and dealing in deception, it dawned on me what that was about and that I had fact, in fact realized my, my young desire to be involved in the world of magic, but it was the world of deception. And so when I read that in the book, when we went to the Ministry of Fear, 
that had a special resonance for me to go to somewhere, uh, excuse me, the Ministry of Magic. That had a very special resonance for me because I thought, how cool is that? A Ministry of Magic. I was just bowled over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a pretty incredible, the, the, the fact that Rowling is so, in such loving detail, has set up a full government system um, in her books the, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have to for, um, for uh, young adult school. fiction. It's yeah. very oh, impressive. Oh, I, I've got to weigh in with this. <laughs> when I first went to the agency, uh, we're talking early 60s, one of our communications devices is that was the vacuum tube. You would open up the tube, put a message in it, put it into the tube system, it would be sucked up into the air, go all over the building, and end up somewhere. Pneumatic tubing, right? And I got to thinking, this is the same as the owl system. I mean, for a long time, they did it by owls. And and as, as I've forgotten who said, but that was very messy. So now they moved. <laughs> They move things around with these little glider, these little uh, paper gliders that get on elevators and get off at the right floor. But but the analogies with my real world are too perfect. I also note that when you we're discussing the bureaucracy, that there's really two professions that don't fare well with J.K. Rowling, and one is the bureaucracy, and the other is reporters. And it seems to me, when we look at her background, where she had to go through the bureaucracy so that she could, you know, get whatever uh, government assistance she could get while she's writing the the first book, uh, and having to feel very, you know, not good about having to ask for it, and she gave herself a year to to try to get off the that system and to finish her book, and I'm sure that was, you know, not a not a fun time, but also I bet she wasn't treated very well. And then, of course, once the book hit, the reporters, I'm sure she met a few Rita Skeeters. And I do mm-hmm. note that Rita Skeeter did interview Peter and I. And we have a website, uh, artofspine.net. And it has not only 250 uh, Potter spy trivia on it, but it also has Rita Skeeter filleting the two of us. Uh, and uh, for anyone who's interested and then when we attend the LeakyCon 2014 uh, coming up at the end of July and August 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th uh, we will be there doing a presentation Peter and I we will also be handing out a very special newspaper called the Leaky Prophet and that's where Rita, Rita Skeeter's interview is in it uh, of us as well as the, uh, uh, the Potter Trivia and uh, so we, we look forward to going to that. Uh, but back to the point, uh, she doesn't seem to like bureaucracy. And my guess is uh, they weren't very nice to her when it when it mattered. Mm. Well, I, I just love uh, going to what, to what Peter said about deception, um, because we, we kind of even the American public and, 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 you know, it's kind of it's almost familiar. It's almost ingrained in the public consciousness that a government agency must inherently be deceptive um, at, to some extent, um, you know, for the safety of agents in the field, for the overall, you know, preventing mass chaos, that sort of thing. There, beca- there comes a time when deception is part of the game. And now connecting that with magic, 
which has inherently deceptive principles, sleight of hand, what you don't see. I think it's a really a perfect marriage in quite a way I never thought of before. May I add one other thing? I find it fascinating that the CIA uses deception to find out the truth and to tell our leaders the truth. And everywhere else in government, they're trying to hide the truth or pervert it. That's <laughs> mind-boggling, for sure. Well, and speaking of truth-tellers and double-crossing and whatnot, and I really just want to give this topic of conversation to Lynn and Peter um, to touch on because it is such a big chunk of uh, this particular chapter that they analyzed. Uh, and I don't want to go too far into it because I know Laura has set it up as a fantastic question of the week. Um, but I'll let you guys run with it because um, you had some really interesting ideas about it. Here in level two in the Department of Magical Law where we have uh, deboarded the elevator, we encounter Kingsley Shacklebolt, um, who is a double agent. Um, and uh, there's a few interesting points that you guys had in your book that I was hoping maybe you could uh, briefly discuss for our listeners. The term uh, double agent gets misused, of course. Um, I think of him, Lynn, you and I talked about this, but he is certainly <clears throat> a mole. Mm. He is an agent within, and he is his, his, uh, his higher authority really is the Order of the Phoenix, is it not? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of agents in some cases I work with. They were not betraying anything. They were serving a higher cause. They would not have called themselves agents. They wouldn't have said they were double agents. They were helping me because we believed in something beyond their immediate uh, organization. And so for me, uh, the Order of the Phoenix, and it's called a higher loyalty, uh, uh, seems absolutely natural to me. I'm not uncomfortable with that at all. And Kingsley Shacklebolt is indeed, he's, you know, he's doing his job, but he's also pretending to look for Sirius. At the same time, he's being able to give inside information to Dumbledore's army. And um, it's an, you know, it makes perfect sense. He's in the right person in the right place. And to just tie it into real world, um, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the person who was providing the United States the information, so we were able to know exactly what was going on, literally the, the book on the missiles that were supposedly in Cuba, um, that prevented a world war because that person provided that information. He was found out later and shot, by the way, by in Russia and mm -hmm. the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. Uh, another person that Peter worked with extensively uh, is a, uh, uh, a person from Poland who realized when he was on the uh, the Polish staff, working on the Polish staff, that the Soviet Union, if there was going to be a war, they were planning to have it right on Poland. If there was a nuclear exchange, the first place that was going to be decimated was Poland. And he, for that reason, and he felt he was being a patriot, uh, be, uh, provided uh, the battle plans, the Soviet battle plans, uh, to the uh, United States or England uh, uh, so as to prevent that from happening. And he felt like he saved his country. And for 10 years, they thought of him as a traitor. Peter, remind me, you were, you were the uh, primary researcher on the book. Could you remind me of the name of that fellow? Yeah, his name was Richard Kuklinski. Kuklinski, yeah. And he was, uh, this, this is almost light out of, right out of rolling. 
He was later acknowledged to be a hero of both the United States or the West and Poland. So it's quite an extraordinary case. Well, and it's those two stories and this particular fictional one that we're examining are excellent examples. And I know you both mentioned it in the book um, and analyzed this concept further um, of that in this in the Harry Potter series, that dreaded phrase for the greater good. Um, the second time that's come up recently, Marissa Reynolds recently said it two episodes ago, um, when we were discussing the book and it's coming up again here with Kingsley, um, and his operations in the ministry. It's a, it's, it's depending on, it's a lot of different factors. Yet again, that moral grayness. I imagine that's very subjective for the greater good and really who Mm. determines what the greater good is. Right. I also want to point out, um, just that Kingsley as a mole is particularly interesting to me just because in this, this isn't the only instance we see him doing this in Half-Blood Prince. We find out he's becomes a mole in the muggle world working, um, for the the muggle Muggle prime minister, Minister, um, to try and like get an idea of what's going on through there to report to back to the wizard ministry. So then he becomes, you know, a, a mole for the ministry, whereas he was, a the other way around before. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just interesting to me, you know, it's, it's complicated if everyone is, you know, if everyone's doing that, then it's just, then that's why, who can you trust? That's why that situation becomes, you know, an issue, but it's that whole idea of the greater good and who are you serving and who are you betraying is just very, very interesting. And if I can mention one thing that in the, the book that we have, um, the first part of the book, we go through Order of the Phoenix chapter by chapter to describe the spy craft. But then the second half of the book, we have chapters that the types of spies of which ones are moles and which ones have been double agents. We also have one on the ethics uh, of Harry Potter. And I, I just mentioned that because the greater do good does come out on a, on a regular basis. And I was just rereading, I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, book six, and we list all the different spies throughout the series and all the different people who are double agents. And I have to confess, um, we missed one, and that was Lupin. Mm-hmm. Lupin oh. was a double agent, I believe, in book six, where he was going and living with the werewolves. Yeah. I Yeah, I picked up on that because I put that into my po- podcast question of the week. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, th- but this conversation, uh, before we get on to that, this conversation between uh, Arthur and uh, Kingsley here, where they, they're, there are several different layers to the conversation, you know, on one hand, they're talking very office, you know, <laughs> can be overheard about needing more information, needing a report from Arthur. And then on a different level, the one that only Harry hears as a, a six inch voice sort of thing is, you know, if you're, if you can get out of here by six, Molly's making meatballs, you know, it's, it's, and, and the distance that they're trying to convey the lack of familiarity with one another on the outside, whereas it's obviously very intimate. Hey, you can share my wife's cooking tonight. Um, on the inside, very just interesting, very exciting to see that taking place for Harry. It, it is a bit like espionage. It feels that way um, in the hidden sort of the fact that they're hiding their true identities in front of everybody around them. But so, at the same time, they're taking pretty, not big risks, but risks nonetheless by 
by saying comments like that of, you know, inviting him over for dinner and Kingsley winking at Harry, like, there's so many people there and there's so many people who are potentially on so many different sides that even just small things like that is, it's, it's a risk. And, um, you know, I think the purpose of putting it in there is to, you know, highlight this, the fact that they are, you know, pretending and being, you know, yeah, pretending to have this, you know, cold distance, but at the same time, it's it's fairly irresponsible considering, you know, is it is it really worth it to be able to, to be doing those sort of things? Well, yeah, um, in, in front of Harry, they do kind of treat it like child's play. Like, <laughs> pretend is a great word in that situation, Laura. Right. Well, Peter, you so. must have occasionally ran into agents you were running, uh, and you had to pretend you didn't know them. Oh, yeah. Well, well there were times when... <laughs> I encountered people in the street, and they had to pretend not to know me. <laughs> uh, and I think when you engage in an activity where you take on other names, which I did, uh, you run that risk. And so you need to be prepared to deal with it, because it's liable to come up at, at the most unexpected of times. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So. I did want to mention while they were going up in the elevator, um, speaking of the Fountain of Magical Brethren, the beast and being and spirit divisions of the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures on Level 4, in between the beast, being, and spirit divisions and the pest advisory board is the Goblin Liaison Office. The Goblin Liaison Office, of course, that's where the goblins are placed in between all of these departments that feature nasty beasts and, you know, the pests and that sort of thing. So it definitely isn't very equal. Oh, no. If you read the introduction of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, you'll see, um, as I mentioned before, that there is a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, complicated politics at the Ministry of Magic. And one of them, of course, sadly, is poor Mr. Weasley's piddly little office that we see. Uh, eagle-eyed readers will also notice that uh, we get our first appearance of the Quibbler, That'll be important later on, um, slipped in there. But then, of course, we have one last crucial detail in our visit to the Ministry in this chapter, which is that Harry's uh, hearing has changed both time and location. And not only is the time very soon, it's five minutes ago, and we are terribly, terribly late. Um, The horrible thing about this that that I just... uh, that I that I caught on to while reading is I recently took a um, uh, last year I took a class called Partners in Policy Making, um, learning to advocate for uh, individuals with uh, disabilities, and uh, this was actually talked a lot about in uh, that su- uh, summit about uh, power play, um, and how the uh, and and we see a lot of this from the ministry in this situation. Um, and poor Mr. Weasley has tried to combat it this whole time by both himself dressing as a muggle, making sure Harry looks as plainly dressed as possible, uh, not using magic to get to the ministry. And uh, somehow the ministry has still found a way to undermine that. Uh, I don't know, Lynn, again, Lynn and Peter, if you if you want to weigh in on this in uh, instances of official spy business. Well, um, yeah, I, and I, would, I would just make a quick comment, and that is... Um, the situation is not an unusual one. You're in the wrong room at the wrong time on the wrong day. And 
one of the things as an intelligence officer, you then fall back on and think and try and analyze. Well, why? Who did this? And why did this happen? And the one thing that you can never rule out, and is probably more often than not the case, is just sheer incompetency. Hmm. And that's what you can get. In, a, in other words, there is no malvolence. Nobody is out to get you. Somebody just screwed up. <laughs> but do we think that's? I was going to say, do we think that's no. the situation here? No, I. Th- I think it's clear that that Fudge was uh, trying to make it so that he wouldn't be there. Uh, total. Uh, denial of any type of due process or trial. It's almost Alice in Wonderland, sentence first, trial after. Um, (laughs) And he was clearly, when we get to the next chapter, I mean, the way the whole thing went, where it's not uh, Ms. Bones, who's supposed to be fair, but instead, you know, three inquisitors. And again, I don't want to get to the next chapter, but uh, one of the things we try to do throughout our book is we do look at everything that happens and look at it from an intelligence standpoint. And we even just, we have little interior paragraphs to say, okay, analysis, you know, do, do we think this was an accident that the time and place was changed? Uh, and of course, Dumbledore just happens to be away and, but luckily finds out through other means. Uh, and, uh, it clearly was uh, Fudge's intent to make sure that uh, Dumbledore wasn't there uh, and mm-hmm. Harry uh, potentially wasn't there, was late. They might have waited a while longer for Harry. Uh, so it seemed to me clear the whole purpose was so that Dumbledore wouldn't be there and once again save Harry. Yeah. Uh, I had one further comment to make about this um, government place of, of, of where they all work. Um, the uh, the situation of regarding windows in different offices. Arthur is judged as being not important enough to have a window in his office, and sort of the inter office politics of the government building. We learn that the magical maintenance staff who controls what the weather is looking like uh, through these windows. They were angling for a pay raise. And so it was a monsoon for two months until they presumably (laughs) got that pay raise um, that everybody in the organization had to deal with bad weather uh, just on so that this department could get more funding. Um, I just thought was a really unique, interesting insight that, you know, as a kid, you you just don't expect, but it it tends to reward um, you again and again, the older that you get. And if you're involved, not necessarily even in a government agent or in espionage, but in inter-office politics, um, it's nice to see these concepts be represented here in Harry Potter. No, no. Well, and as I mentioned before, that's just one of those uh, I've, uh, 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 the, one of those wonderful little details that Rowling puts in that you always love because she doesn't have to, but it makes the world feel so much more accessible and real. Um, that there's, you know, Arthur Weasley takes the time to mention, oh, there's, you know, a little office drama going on, water cooler talk. Um, it's a nice little uh, kind of moment. Um, but to go back to the the issue with the hearing, the one thing I just wanted to say before we wrap up this chapter discussion is that, uh, you know, that with with the Partners in Policymaking Summit, what, what I what we were taught was um, frequently when you do meetings, because if you have an individual with a disability in your life, you go to a lot of meetings. Um, and uh, what what frequently will happen is somebody will change the time of the meeting, change the location. And when you get to the meeting, you will end up encountering a bunch of people that you don't know. Uh, sometimes people from the state are brought in um, and there's no good explanation as to why. Uh, people who are providers, who it, it doesn't make sense why they're there. Um, and uh, 
a lot of ulterior motives and, and things going on in meetings like this. Um, so I, I, I like that it's put here by Rowling that this, this particular instance happens and that it's such a dramatic change um, because it really does, a, a, it's, it happens in real life. So with that, we leave Harry and Mr. Weasley standing outside uh, the room, the courtroom for the hearing, and that ends Chapter 7, The Ministry of Magic. Okay, so the podcast question of the week, we're going to play off of one of the questions that were one of the analysis questions in um, our guest book, The Art of Spying. So between Snape, Lupin, Pettigrew, Kingsley, and many more characters, we see a great deal of double agents and moles throughout the series. In this chapter specifically, Kingsley is working as a mole in the ministry for, for the Order of the Phoenix, providing misinformation about the whereabouts of Sirius Black to the ministry for the case he is leading. So... Is Kingsley a traitor to his employer, or does his belief that the ministry is doing something morally wrong, is doing the morally wrong thing, negate him as a traitor? And what about the other moles in the series, such as the most complicated double agent of them all, Snape? So, I will leave that there. For you guys. Uh, well, we would definitely, really, resoundingly, standing ovationly, uh, like to thank both Lynn and Peter for joining us on this episode of Aloha More. You guys offer just the coolest stories and insight, and uh, let me just say thank you so much. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for including us. We wanted to take some time to uh, just say, uh, if you can inform us where your book is available, this is, again, um, Harry Potter and the Art of Spying, uh, where is it that we can um, get our hands on a copy of this book, of course, um, and for the listeners as well? Okay. Um, well, I will just mention it is available here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and uh, Lynn, I believe it's available at a bookstore in Red Lodge, Montana. That is correct. It's also it has been sent to the 750 independent bookstores throughout the United States who are members of the American uh, Booksellers Association. And uh, so, if you have an indie bookstore you like, you can order it there. Also, it's already on Amazon.com as a, a pre-order. It doesn't come out technically till September 15th, but we're bringing a, a whole stack of copies to LeakyCon. Uh, 2014 in Orlando, which is from uh, July 31st, August 1st and 2nd. Uh, Peter and I will be there. We are presenting on our book. Uh, we will have uh, over a thousand books that are available for the 5,000 people there if they want to buy the books. We'll be handing out the Leaky Prophet to anyone who wants it. And we understand our presentation. Uh, Leaky Con has set up a room that seats 600, holds 1,200, and they intend to fill it. So Peter and I are going to have to do a lot of magic. And Peter, bring your magic tricks with you. Well, I know that Laura, myself, and Michael will all be in the front row if we can muster (laughs) the the courage to get up early enough to do it. But uh, I think that your discussion, that what you bring to the 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 professions, uh, you know, what you bring to the books uh, as a result of your individual experience is just super fascinating, and I look very forward to seeing you at LeakyCon. No, thank you very much. Seconded. Oh, yeah. I'll be up front in costume, you guys. So. <laughs> well, I'll mention one other thing. We have we understand that there's a possibility that there will be a wizard walking around in a beautiful blue cape, full beard, 
and he has a CIA, um, uh, I guess, a briefcase that's attached to him, uh, a la Blues Brothers, uh, with a... uh, um, handcuffs handcuffs so anyway so look for the wizard as you walk around uh, with the CIA <laughs> briefcase handcuffed to his arm <laughs> definitely oh. once again thank you guys so much but if you the listeners would like to be on the show head over to our website and check out the be on the show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com uh, if you have an Apple headphones you're all set to record just no fancy equipment needed so definitely check that out and in the meantime if you need to get in touch with us because perhaps you need some advice for your upcoming ministry hearing uh, there are a lot of ways to reach Alohomora. you can tweet us at Alohomora MN you can find us on Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, our Tumblr, MN Alohomora Podcast. You can also leave us a, a voicemail at 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. You may subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts on the show. Uh, make sure to follow us on Snapchat uh, uh, at uh, MN underscore Alohomora, where uh, Mike Platko is doing some amazing artwork uh, from the Wizarding World. And of course, we have our audio boo account. Leave us a message directly on alohomora.mugglenet.com and it could be played here on the show. It's free and all you need is a microphone to record yourself. So make sure and get in touch with us. We would also like to mention the Alohomora store where we have uh, plenty of show themed uh, items for you to purchase. I would read out what kinds of items, but we actually replace that sentence in the usual document with, what do you want to see in the store? So if there's something besides flip-flops and travel <laughs> mugs and uh, things that you want to see, please let us know. And also I'll try and work on getting the old line back into this document um, so that I remember all of the things that we sell. Suffice to say, very interesting uh, things and very wonderful items. Uh, you can support the show by visiting the store, which you can find at alohomora.mugglenet.com. And also be sure to check out our exclusive mobile app, which is available seemingly worldwide with varying prices. There are transcript bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. And I believe this week I am in charge of the content and I will try to work in something spy-related. <laughs> that shall... <laughs> Be determined. <laughs> uh, even if it's just you jamming to the Mission Impossible theme, I'm sure it would be awesome. <laughs> That's true. Well, uh, once again, I am Eric Skull. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Laura Riley, and thank you for listening to episode 84 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I'm just going to tack on, I need to say my name again, because literally right when I said it, Charlie came out of his room and sneezed the loudest sneeze he possibly could. Charlie? So, my brother. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was... I, okay, say it. I'm Michael Harley. <laughs>